This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. We have such a good one for you today. We came across this uh, survey. Uh, It's from the UK, though, but we thought it was very apropos because there's a lot in here we agreed with uh, that says that out of all of the kind of tourist attractions in the world, they put together a list of the most desired ones that people would like to go see. And then they put together a list of the most overrated tourist attractions. And number one on their list the Mona Lisa. They said that is the most overrated tourist attraction out there. So we started arguing about this at our desk this morning. So we thought, you know, we should probably make this the hot question of the day. Because the thing is, when any of us travel, you like to see the sights, right? And if you've gone anywhere, then you've probably lined up to see something somewhere. And sometimes those sights will exceed your expectations. I loved the Colosseum in Rome. It took my breath away, as did the Taj Mahal in India. Just absolutely spectacular, both of those sites. And then there are the ones that make you go, meh, meh, like what's the big deal? I'm going to be honest here and say that for me, that was the Spanish steps in Rome. I was like, you know, some steps. What's the big deal here? Uh, For other people, there are other choices. Like for instance, the CN Tower in Toronto. What's the big deal? Well, guess what? We put together a list of a couple of things on here. So we want to know, what do you think is the most overrated tourist attraction in the world? Is it the Mona Lisa? Is it the Statue of Liberty? I know I disagree with that one, but apparently it made the list for other people. So we put it on here. Is it the CN Tower? Or is it something else? Like reply and tell us what you think the most overrated tourist attraction is. We're going to have the complete list on this and get people to weigh in coming up a little bit later on the show. But right now we want you to vote for our hot question of the day. You can go to Sarah 980 on Twitter. You can go to at CKNW and cast your vote there. We would love if you would tell us a story too. I think if you've ever been to Paris, you make the trek, right, to go see the Mona Lisa. I know I did. And every person in my family had the exact same reaction as it sounds like everybody else did. You walk in there, the room is, you go because you follow the crowds. You know, everybody's heading at the Louvre to the Mona Lisa. And then you get into this room And it's like so far away, you can't get close to it because everybody's taking a picture. It's got glass, so you can't even really see it. And you go, is that it? Is that like, that the big deal? Like we're just here to cross this off the list. Literally, that's why you go see the Mona Lisa, just to cross it off the list. What is the most overrated tourist attraction in the world? Call our buzz line, 604-331-BUZZ, 331-2899. Or you can email me as well. Uh, That is simi at cknw.com. Would love to get your responses on this. And we will be definitely going through this coming up just after the 11 o'clock news. Michelle tweeted me to say, I've been to all those places. And yes, the Mona Lisa is the most crowded and overrated have your say on that as well. Simi at cknw.com and cast your vote. Uh, you'll find us at cknw or Simi Sarah 980. I have a feeling we're going to get some good ones on this. And right now, I got to tell you, it's not looking good for the CN Tower from the votes that are coming in already. So yeah, let us know how you feel about that. I pledge to work hard to represent this community. I'm going to work across party lines to get things done for our community, to do my best over the next five months. That is the newly elected Green Party MP Paul Manley speaking last night, beat out six other candidates to win that Nanaimo Ladysmith federal by-election. And you know what? We've got a real federal election coming up in about six months' time. So was this a test run? And does it, you know, maybe portend things to come? Well, let's find out. Let's go to the soothsayer on this. Keith Baldry is with us now, Global BC's Legislative Bureau Chief. What, you don't like that title? 
<laughs> well, I'm right sometimes, but I'm wrong sometimes too. So uh, she's there, maybe not so much. Well, we'll take we'll take it as it comes. Now, what about this one here? Was this what did you think was going to happen? Did we see this coming? Oh, I think so. Um, I didn't. Although, frankly, I didn't see the margin of victory to be quite as large as as it turned out to be. I actually thought the NDP was going to hold that riding after talking to you know sources in. in the other all camps basically uh, that the greens were going to be close, but I don't. I certainly think the NDP was caught off guard here by the by the magnitude of the green victory. The Greens thought they were going to win. They had a poll. They were uh, sort of pushing around to the media that win by twelve points. It, I think everybody scoffed at that, saying that's that's crazy. Like, where's the evidence for that? Well, that turned out to be almost the margin of victory. So oh. um, it was a. Um, it was there for the Greens for the taking. Again, I, I had the NDP first and, and maybe the Conservatives and the, and the Greens vying for second place. But uh, no, the Greens uh, did very well. And in fact, the NDP was locked in a battle with the Conservatives, except it was for second place, not for first place. So this is a very impressive victory by the Greens. Uh, now, how you, what do you do with this? Yeah. How, far can you, how far can you extrapolate this across the country? I don't think you can. However, I do think uh, this is evidence that perhaps in pockets of the country, particularly in British Columbia, do not discount the Green Party. Um, they are a force that's coming on, not not um, dissipating. It's a, it's a growing party, not a shrinking one. And so you'll start looking at ridings where they could do well in, in the October election. Victoria, here in the capital, obviously has to come into play for the Greens. They almost... One, well, they finished a, a respectable second in 2015 to the NDP. The NDP incumbent, Marie Rankin, has, has uh, quit his seat, vacated his seat, not running again. So the incumbency uh, advantage for the NDP is no longer there, as it was no longer there in the number of Ladysmith. I think the Greens now become the favorite to win the Victoria riding uh, in 2015 at the expense of the NDP. Then you look at uh, people like Jody Wilson-Raybo yeah. and Jane Philpott. Does this make it much more attractive for them? Uh, the fact that Greens won so impressively for them to cross and run as Green candidates. I, I now think uh, the odds favor Jody Wilson-Raybaugh running for the Greens in Vancouver Granville. That puts that riding into play. So the Greens, I think, are going to pick up some seats. Not I'm not talking 20 or 30 seats, but enough seats to damage both the NDP and the Liberals uh, at the national level. And that brings into question whether or not this is enough to ensure Andrew Scheer and the Conservatives of a majority victory come October. Yeah, does it look like with something like this, you look at the landscape, and does it look like it's more fractured as we head toward that election? Oh, I think it's fractured, and the the uh, the public is volatile. The voters are volatile right now. Uh, I think there's, I've got a piece out this week saying there's mounting evidence. A lot of Canadians are angry at things. Uh, six of the last seven elections provincially in the last year and a half uh, have seen the incumbent government kicked out of office, uh, where people seem to be straying across uh, party lines to punish the government, to punish the establishment, to punish the status quo. And I think there was a bit of that going on last night in in, uh, Nanaimo, where it was uh, definitely a vote against the status quo. It wasn't uh, endorsing the NDP, the Liberals, or the Conservatives. No, it was the outsider party, the Green Party. And I think you're going to see a bit, uh, more of that uh, come the fall. Now, in places like Alberta, which is almost monolithic conservative territory, or even Saskatchewan and Manitoba, I don't think you're going to see the Greens necessarily do well. But in urban Toronto, 
uh, Metro Vancouver and the island, I think, and maybe parts of the Maritimes, they've got a shot to uh, to make a mark and, and pick up some seats. And again, that will come at the expense of both the Liberals and the NDP. The NDP has most to lose here because they've got a smaller pile of chips to play with. Yeah. Uh, they can't afford to lose seats. The Liberals can afford to lose a few, uh, but even there, they're getting into dangerous territory. But it's the NDP. If they if they lose a you know uh, even a, a handful of seats to the Greens, that's that's. Uh, potentially devastating for them. Is this also tricky for the Greens, though, Keith? Because does that mean that they're a protest vote? Like, do people really care about what the Green Party stands for, or is it just that you are not these other parties? Well, that, that's a very good question. Um, you know, I said last night on our, on our coverage that one of the big mysteries we've been tracking for some time is who is the Green Party voter? Uh, what motivated yeah. them? Uh, what, was it a protest vote in B.C. in 2017? I think it was a bit of that for... Uh, uh, protesting against Christy Clark. They didn't want to vote for the NDP, but they bo- wanted to vote for something else, so they voted for the Greens to the point of 17%, which is significant. In some writings, the Green Party came second in 2017. So I think I think it is a, a, a protest vehicle uh, for many people. Uh, I think it's the party's still hampered by its name. It, a lot of people think it's a one-issue party when it's not. Um, although, you know, fighting climate action is its, its uh, climate change is its top priority issue. But it, it's a protest vehicle. And right now, being a protest vehicle is rather attractive to people because there's a lot to protest for people. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we saw that in 2017 where people were, were anxious about affordability. And they voted for the, you know, for the, the opposition, not for the government at that point. And again, this rising tide of anger and resentment which I, towards the incumbents and the status quo benefits a party like the Greens because they're not like anyone else. You can do a pox on all your houses by voting for the Greens. And I think that was a play in the Nanaimo as well. Okay, so then speaking of affordability and those kinds of issues, gas prices have been top of that list. We saw the Premier lately talking a lot about this. And what's he decided to do today? Like, what is the BC Utilities Commission going to do? Yeah, so the Premier had a talk with uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. We just got a, a statement from the, Prime, the Premier's office. Uh, he's asked uh, the, uh, Trudeau to talk with his officials to see what they can do. In the meantime, he's written a letter to the chair of the BC Utilities Commission asking for the commission to investigate, in, his, in the Premier's words, why gas prices are what they are in British Columbia, and to hold hearings, which is interesting, uh, and uh, on, on this issue and get uh, expert witness testimony. We're not talking about a public inquiry here. There's no powers of subpoena or anything like that. But the Utilities Commission does hold hearings all the time, and there are interveners, uh, experts who weighed in with uh, their submissions, and it'll be interesting. I would assume the Utilities Commission will take this up uh, as, a, as a task, and we will be getting hearings on why BC gas prices are the way they are. It doesn't necessarily mean to, that this will lead to some sort of relief at the pump, though. I mean, don't get your hopes up that this is going right. to uh, automatically result in some magic solution. I think the Utilities Commission will reveal it's a very, as you've had so many experts on your show, talk about how this is an incredibly complex issue, and there's a lot of factors to come into play. But I think it'll be welcome news if the, if the Utilities Commission holds hearings and provides sort of some transparency and clarity over why gas prices are what they are. That will be a public service. But uh, it's a bit of action by the Premier, but it doesn't mean that prices are going down anytime soon. Right. Is it a way to maybe change the discussion, though, away from drop the taxes, drop the taxes, to here's what the real problem is? I think so. And in, in his letter to the Utilities Commission, he makes it clear, the Premier makes it clear, uh, reducing taxes is not the answer, to, and that, ta- that taxes are not the problem here. He still 
uh, sort of pointing a finger at the uh, at the the gas companies, the oil companies for for the big problems here. Interestingly enough, he keeps not in the letter. He doesn't use the word gouging, but he does refer to you know accusing oil companies of gouging when he has news conferences. But interestingly enough, in the in his government's own submission in court over why gas what affects gas prices and when they're fighting the Alberta. Uh, Alberta's Bill 12, he lists a number of reasons, but does not, the, the lawyers for the government do not mention the fact that there's an accusation of gas, uh, of, of price gouging going on. So it may, the gouging sounds nice politically. It doesn't seem to meet the test legally, and I don't think the, the, the commission uh, right. will necessarily go there either. Okay, so we're going to be talking more about all those stories, but on a completely different note here, Keith, we are talking today about overrated tourist attractions. Oh. What is the most overrated tourist attraction that you've ever been to? Um, well, it's no longer in Victoria, but I had to take my kids there when they were little. It was the Undersea Gardens, which was this sort of oh. thing anch- anchored off the uh, the harbor here, where you went in and you went down into this grimy little tank. <laughs> um, and the windows were encrusted with algae. And a diver would be out there in the inner harbor holding up uh, an octopus and a starfish, and that was well, that was that was it. And I thought I'm paying what eleven bucks a head each here, uh, including my friends' kids. And I thought this is really something else. That a driver just holding a diver holding up a, a beleaguered <laughs> starfish, you could barely see him through the encrusted window. And thankfully, the thing is no more. It's been towed away. Twenty thirteen. I just looked it up while you were saying that, so it's been yeah, gone. It, and maybe maybe it's a diving wreck somewhere and they sunk it or something because it served no purpose. Although it really did get the Japanese tourists um, I'll bet. There by the troves. But, but local residents in Victoria, uh-uh. Not, That's a not good a fan one. of that. It's, it was definitely... Uh, overrated. That's a good one. Most people are saying the Mona Lisa <laughs> or the CN Tower, but that's a really good one, too. <laughs> I like the Mona Lisa. Uh, CN Tower, eh. You know, yeah, uh, right? See, that's my feeling, too. You Could, sort of compare that to the Eiffel Tower, which is a real tower. There um, you go. It's more, more interesting. It is more interesting. <laughs> Keith, thank you. Okay, Zemi. We learned a little BC history on that one, too. I did not know about the Undersea Gardens. Turns out it had been there for almost 50 years when it closed in 2013. But Keith Baldry rating the Pacific Undersea Gardens, the most overrated tourist attraction that he's ever been to. I don't blame him. I'm just reading about it right now and thinking, yeah, that really does sound kind of lame. You went somewhere, right? You probably lined up to see some great attraction that people told you, oh, it's amazing. You have to see it. And then you stood in front of it and thought, eh, really? Is this it? A lot of people feel that way about the Mona Lisa, actually. We're going to talk more about this survey that was done with the help of our contributor, Claire Allen. Hi, Claire. Good morning, Simi. Have you had this happen to you? I have had this happen to me, and I totally agree with number one on the list, the Mona Lisa as the most disappointing tourist attraction. Now, before we get into the list, we'll say this is a survey done by the airline EasyJet, and they served uh, surveyed 2,000 Britons, so... Okay, yeah, British people. British people, not a huge survey, but um, I think that a lot of people will agree with what made the top 10. So number one is the Mona Lisa. We know the famous painting by Leonardo da Vinci currently hanging in the Louvre. But it's like, so you can't get anywhere close to it. You can't see what's remarkable about it because it's covered in like thick plexiglass or whatever. Exactly. And I seem to remember that you're right. You can't get close to it. There's like ropes that block um, getting like right up your nose to the glass. But also... 
when I saw it, I saw it when I was like 14 or 15 years old. I don't know what I was expecting, but I was expecting more. And because it's only like 30 inches by 21. And yeah, like I thought it was going to be huge, like floor to ceiling. It's tiny. It's tiny. So I'm sure a lot of our listeners know that because they've seen it. And I think a lot of people are disappointed by the size. I think you're absolutely right on that. What else is on the list? Number two, Checkpoint Charlie in Berlin. I have never been there, but this is the border crossing between East and West Berlin during the Cold War. Um, you know, it's just a small little, well, it's not small, but it's small in comparison. It's just like a little statue there. I'm sure it seemed like a good idea at the time. Yeah. But now we're so people, are, there's like a generation beyond that, a couple like, you know, and you're like, okay, big deal. It was exactly. separate. Now it's not anymore. Exactly. And it's just the, yeah, it's just a couple of uh, statues there and like a little checkpoint. So um, the next one is the mannequin piece in uh, Brussels. It's just the what is la- this? the lar- la- it's a bronze sculpture, Simi, in the center of Brussels, depicting a naked little boy urinating into a fountain. How old is this? Because I was in Brussels when I was fifteen years old, and I don't remember seeing this. Uh, well, parent- it's actually quite small, so oh. it's you may not have seen it. But um, yeah, it's up there. People okay. saying they're not that impressed. I think it has to do with the size of the okay. right. the sculpture. Okay. Next one. Number four, Moulin Rouge, the uh, nightclub in Grand Pelly. Yeah, I can see that because it's kind of like whatever. Yeah, so this was uh, it was from it was founded in 1889, and this is the birthplace of the modern form of the can can dance. And you can tourists can still go there and see performances. But I think that people go there expecting the movie by Bob like Lorman. Like Kidman to be up yeah. there or something. You know, just on her like days off that she'd be there doing the can can for you. <laughs> Turns out she's not. So not great. Uh, people are not uh, not impressed with that. Uh, next one on the list, number five, the Little Mermaid statue in Copenhagen. Aww, I know. So this, this is, is so cute. It's cute. Um, it was uh, created in 1913. It's a bronze statue by Edvard Eriksson uh, depicting a mermaid becoming human. So do people think Ariel's going to be there? Or like they get there and they think they're it's going to be Disneyfied, right? They're they- expecting a real mermaid, Simi. No. <laughs> um, uh, very similar, actually, to our girl in the yeah, wetsuit in Stanley Park. I love that. Yeah. Okay. They say that we ripped off the mermaid statue oh, in Copenhagen. Did. Well, I'm sure we did. <laughs> <laughs> okay, number six, which I was really surprised at. I'm surprised by this one, too. The Eiffel Tower. Who thinks this is overrated? I don't understand. When I was talking to our producer, Alan, he said maybe it's because when you get up in the Eiffel Tower and you're at the top of it and you're looking out at the skyline, something's missing. What What can I not see? Yeah, it's the, the Eiffel, Eiffel Tower because you're, you're on it. <laughs> yeah, so apparently there's a better tower to go on that's high. I know Paris has a lot of height restrictions in buildings, but some buildings are higher than what was uh, than the originally sort of like low buildings that are okay. there. You can see the Eiffel Tower if you go into that tower and then you get the whole view with the Eiffel Tower in the, the distance. I love the Eiffel Tower. Also, we, we stayed somewhere really close to it. And so we had a view of the Eiffel Tower and it sparkles at night. And yes. that was like the most beautiful thing when it sparkled at night. Yeah. So this is the one thing that I actually don't agree with on I this list. Agree. Because I think, you know, you can picnic around the Eiffel Tower. There's beautiful parks there. Yeah. So I don't understand. But whatever. I'm obviously not amongst these 2,000 British people that feel this way. Okay. What else? Um, so the next one is the Spanish Steps in Rome. So okay. I agree. Why? It's just steps. I don't understand. I went there. We, we Okay, great. Crowded. And I thought, is this it? Like, what's the big deal here? <laughs> just a bunch of steps. Yeah, so it's steps. And I just realized I sounded like my dad when I said that. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I thought it was a little interesting as well um, because, yeah, you're right. I mean, there are just steps and it's it's between, um, it, it's dominated by the Trinitia Diamonti Church at the top. So yeah. it's just a bunch of steps with the church behind it. I guess people are, they don't find it that impressive. I mean, I drove by the Brentwood Mall. They got a bunch of new steps there. 
Great, I'll go there. <laughs> right. It's cheaper than going to Rome. Uh, the Trevi Fountain in Rome is number eight. So this is the largest Baroque fountain in the city of Rome and one of the most famous fountains in the world. You city. know what? It was being um, rehabilitated when oh. I was there, so it was all covered up. I never saw Scaffolding? it. Scaffolding? Well, that yeah. would, that's Walked a reason. I was like, oh, I guess this would be impressive if it was uncovered. That's a reason to be disappointed then. Uh, number nine, the Louvre in Paris. You know, Beautiful. The, I love the Louvre. It's the world's largest art museum. It's gorgeous. I don't know why people are disappointed by it, but... What are they expecting? That's a great question. I don't know what they're expecting, but there are a lot of wonderful pieces of art in there, aside from the Mona Lisa, which is obviously immensely disappointing. But there are lots of other beautiful things there that you are. can see there in are. the Louvre. And it's huge. I mean, you really can't get through the no. whole thing in one day. So I don't understand. There's so much to see. Why would you be disappointed? I think, I think people get overwhelmed. And I think that's why they're probably disappointed. You know why I think it is? It's because they didn't like the Mona Lisa, so they just write off the yeah. entire museum. Why do we do this? And you have to stand in line. It's like a big deal. Like, why bother? Yes. And so the last one on our list is the leaning Tower of Pisa, number 10, the most disappointing tourist attraction uh, in the world. Yeah. It's had a four-degree lean because Big of deal. an unstable foundation. And now it's just a permanent lean because they've con- they've fixed it, so that's how it goes. Yes, exactly. And I mean... So now it's artificial. Before it was kind of cool because it was just happening. Mm-hmm. Now it's artificial. Uh, that's a good point. And also, I mean, like, how many of those pictures can you see with those people pretending to uh, hold it up? Like, how annoying. Um, the one thing that I think everything on this list has in common and the reasons why they've made it to the most disappointing tourist attractions is because these are mega tourist attractions and that means they're very, very busy. That's true. So whenever you go somewhere that's well known around the world and there are crowds, you're going to be PO'd. That's true. Especially you, if you don't like crowds and you don't like waiting in line and yeah, you're not going to ex- like this so kind of everything stuff. Everything will be disappointing. Uh, I had a bunch of tweets on this. For instance, Sia tweeted me to say Mount Rushmore. Oh, really? I thought it would be as big as it looked on the movies. Most disappointing attraction ever. And I've seen the Mona Lisa, says Sia. Oh, dear. Yeah, I know. Not a good one. And then, let's see, I had another one here that I got to read. This is the one from Wayne. He said, this probably won't be a popular opinion, but I think Stanley Park is highly <gasps> overrated. I know. He said, there are dozens of spots in Metro Vancouver that are much more interesting, but tourists seem to gravitate to the mundane, at least in my experience, working at hotels. That's Wayne who said wow. that. I know. I thought, bold move, wow, my Wayne. man, bold move. And then Gideon tweeted me to say, Capilano Suspension Bridge. How dare you? He said it's... Re- <laughs> It's ridiculously overpriced and crowded. Plus, the one in North Vancouver is free and doesn't have as many people. And then Brad, and the people are just being merciless about our tourist attractions here, because Brad tweeted me to say, the Hot Springs exhibit at Harrison Hot Springs, if you've ever walked the trail only to end up at the chain link fence in the 1970s brick structure, you'd be like, is that really it? He said, I know it's not a world attraction, but it's overrated big time, Brad says. Thank you for the report, Brad. You don't think there's any local... Um, overrated uh, yeah, attraction. I don't know. I don't agree with Stanley Park. I think Stanley Park is beautiful. What about I mean, the steam it is clock? crowded. We I had- think the steam clock's overrated. Now, I come from a bias here, which I will reveal, is yeah. that for several summers, I worked at a um, souvenir shop mm-hmm. in Gastown. That was my summer job in high school. And it was right in front of the steam, like right by the steam clock. And so I had to hear that thing all day long. And I hated it by the time I finished that job. It's just always a clock that has steam coming out of it. Big I don't deal. know. I, I haven't been anywhere where I've seen another clock like that coming out, like with the steam everywhere. Really? I don't think it's overrated. I'm happy that people come to our city, Simi. Who are you? <laughs> Since <laughs> well, when are you this positive? <laughs> um, I just wanted to go over some of the top 10 most desirable sites. We won't go through them all, okay. but some of the top five here, which I think are pretty interesting. Northern Lights in Iceland. I mean, who wouldn't want to see that? Plus, it's tough to actually see them, right? Yes. 
Yes. So you can't just go any old time. That's right. Exactly. Uh, Number two, somewhere I would love to go, Lake Como in Italy. Visit Mm. George and Amal if they'd have me over. I don't think they will, but okay. okay. Uh, Number three, Santorini in Greece. Beautiful. Uh, Which I hear is a tourist trap, though. Exactly. And yet people still want to go there. And number four, Alps in Switzerland. You don't want to go sing The Sound of Music? Who doesn't want to go sing The I Sound mean, of his, Music? The skiing is nice too. <laughs> um, and uh, last one here, or number five, um, the pink and pink sand El Fonisi Beach in Greece. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. I haven't been there, but I've seen the pictures. Yeah, I've seen all, the pictures from some of these things on the list are, are, are just stunning. So I've been to Cinque Terre, which is number six. Oh, you have? I have, oh, which nice. is funny because Macomb has the big picture of Vernazza, yes. which is one of the villages in Cinque Terre. And I said to him, you know, I've been there and he's never been there. He just has that picture because he likes it. Well, it is beautiful. <laughs> it is beautiful. Gorgeous. I would love to go there. Um, I think that, you know, if you'd like to see any of these, uh, you should get there soon because I'm pretty sure next year these will end up on like the worst list because people are going to start flocking to it yes. to see these beautiful sites. And then, you That's know, the problem the end will of be too many people and people will be disappointed. You don't want to say that canyon in Iceland for me? <laughs> So I, I put this here because this reminds me of the canyon in Iceland that got shut down because Justin Bieber, Bieber. filmed his music video. Yeah. Now I'm going to try to pronounce this, Simi, so bear with me, everyone. Fjallraurgljúfur uh, Canyon. Listen, we'll take your word for it because we don't know how to actually pronounce it. Exactly. So lots of people saw this on Instagram and Justin Bieber's uh, music video and people started flocking to Iceland to go to this canyon. I think I think Instagram is actually the problem. Well, that is interesting that you bring that up because this survey, Simi, revealed that Instagram has become the travel brochure of choice. Yeah, because everybody wants to take their own picture at these places, which yeah. means are you really enjoying them or are you just lining up to take your picture? There? Are you traveling for your own fulfillment and, and like growth or are you just traveling for the gram? Exactly. That's a good question. Uh, Marnie emailed me to say, sadly, the Palace of Versailles. Oh, I had I enjoyed that. Marnie said, we visited there last May and there were so many tourists. We were herded like cattle through the Great Hall and it left us wondering if there were, was any authenticity left. Uh, Marnie, I'm going to tell you no, because I had the exact same experience. I went there and was like, all right, that's great. But don't you expect when you go to these places that there are going to be crowds? I do expect crowds, but I think now it's become so common mm. that I just, mm-hmm. sometimes I get to, for instance, I went to the Vatican, loved it. Yeah. yeah Huge crowds. Nice. Loved it though. Interesting. Yeah. Um, you know what I didn't see on this list also, which you and I were just there together, is uh, Tokyo. There's some great sites in Tokyo. Shibuya Crossing. Shibuya Crossing is great. Um, they also have that dog there that was very loyal to his owner. <laughs> Waited at the Hachi subway. Or was yeah, it? something like that. I don't know. I was she there, there to pay my her. respects to the, my canine god. I did uh, not go. <laughs> but there are some wonderful attractions in Tokyo, and Tokyo mm. is becoming more popular as it's gearing up for the Olympics. Didn't see it listed on here, but I'm going to say that's on my list of desirable sites that I recommend to the NW listener. This report is disturbing confirmation that money laundering in BC is a problem that certainly goes beyond our casinos. In the luxury car market, there is no financial reporting of large cash purchases, no oversight of international bank wire transfers, and no apparent investigation or enforcement. It's all a recipe for exactly what's happened here. Vancouver becoming North America's luxury car capital generally, and perhaps since 2013, claiming North America's luxury car export capital title as well. That is Attorney General David Eby just a few minutes ago painting a picture of BC that is really not very flattering. So essentially, in the last you know five or six years, while casinos were seeing more and more duffel bags of questionable money and transactions, 
As the real estate markets in our province were escalating in price out of control at the same time as all of that, we were seeing more and more bags of cash coming to luxury car dealerships and these big time splashy cars being bought. We have a money laundering problem in the luxury car sector. We wanted to talk more about what was revealed in that German report today. And joining us now is Sam Cooper, a national investigative journalist for Global News. Hi, Sam. Hi, Simi. Were you surprised by anything you heard? Well, I, I think the Attorney General said it best. Uh, he, he mentioned um, on a call that he comes from the Point Grey riding, and really this report for him seemed to confirm what he and his uh, riding constituents were seeing with all these, um, you know, $300,000, $500,000. We've read reports of a $4 million luxury car recently speeding around Vancouver, and he basically said um, this seems to explain it. There's a huge growth in what he called a grey market of um you know thousands of straw buyers that would be fake buyers buying for other people uh offshore exporters that that seem to be getting uh tax money back potentially in relation to money laundering and uh i i think that his tone was he was quite shocked and uh again he saw the correlation with the bags of cash and uh the real estate prices so i think it, it really to me, it was it's surprising, but it's a confirmation of what we've been looking at. Yeah, Sam, I think what's so discouraging for so many of us is that we hear these reports of these questionable transactions, bags of cash, people buying cars with them. And to think that this was going on and nobody, what, none of these people in these businesses had a problem with this or they didn't think there was something wrong here? That definitely came up in uh, the comments of uh, Peter German and Minister Edie with the report. They said they appreciated that uh, some of these car dealers were very frank, that they recognized they were sitting right in the middle of money laundering. They knew that uh, in one case it was mentioned a bag of cash of $240,000 came in. Um, it looks pretty suspicious, but the car dealer has no obligation to report that as a suspicious transaction under Canada's laws. So, in fact, they, they marched that money down to the bank and they banked it into their car dealer's account. So, certainly, people, again, Simi, we've talked about, you know, yeah. the real estate market was giving off the signs, the casinos, all this money flashing around Vancouver, and the cars are just part of it. Uh, what really came out today was there's no regulation for reporting these suspicious transactions and uh, BC citizens may be losing money on the tax side and hiring really bureaucrats to give tax money back to gangsters, it looks like. It, it does. One of the other things that struck me, too, is to hear that there's no dedicated police presence at the ports to catch any of this. That's exactly right. Uh, that that was one of the points that uh, the minister hammered on. Uh, something that we've recognized was the deregulation of BC's economy over the uh, past 15 years. I think the attorney general would like to point at the previous government, and he probably has a good point there. I understand that the port police were, uh, I think, decommissioned uh, under, uh, I believe it was Minister Coleman, and uh, Minister Eby has pointed at... Uh, uh, Mr. Coleman for, I, I believe, deregulating uh, casino police as well. So maybe there's a theme there. So, Sam, when you hear about this today, they said there's more coming, right, with the next chapter of the report as well. Is a public inquiry sounding more and more likely to you? That's really hard to gauge. Uh, I know what I'm hearing is that uh, 
you know, Simi, when we looked back to the 90s in our most recent reports showing that, look, uh, it, all, it really was the NDP that made some decisions that don't look so good in hindsight about opening the door to massive bets and backrack gaming. So I, I'm not sure. I do hear about uh, some people that are close to the, the NDP government talking about um, there, there has been a growing number of people, I think, in that government that, that would like to see an inquiry, but it's still a question of whether the leadership right at the top wants that. And uh, we can only speculate. Some people believe that, you know, the, the, the blame could go in lots of different directions. So we don't know if they, they want to go there. Another thing they mentioned that I thought was interesting was the uh, cash transactions appearing to decline recently, being replaced by these uh, kind of opaque international credit cards. That's something that we keep hearing more about. What is that all about? Absolutely. Uh, we, we saw recently a well-followed um, report about a $4 million uh, luxury car, a unique car that was bought by the, the child of a really a famous real estate investor from the, from the uh, I believe, southern China area. And so my colleague Ian Yun laid that out, that this, this was bought through a credit card. And we don't know if it's suspicious or not, but there's really not much uh, visibility on where that money's coming from. And absolutely, today, Peter German said, we're seeing this more and more. It used to be bags of cash with these, you know, $300,000 cars. Now it's these international credit cards. And police in Canada officially in Canada have no way of knowing where that money is coming from. Minister Eby said there's also individual wire transfers that are being routed into some of these transactions that really have no visibility on them. So that would seem to be, I, I've been believing that we're going to see more vulnerabilities around what you'd call high-tech transactions, and I think we saw some confirmation of that today. Uh, clearly, this is a huge industry, right? I, mean, I, thought, I heard Doug Lepard there say that it was impossible to quantify the amount. Uh, how how integrated is money laundering in BC? It sounds like here's another area where what we just didn't see it coming. Well, um, I, I'm pretty sure that they knew when they looked at this, they were going to find the kind of correlations that, that we saw today. I certainly, I, I've reported on some of these um, very high level criminals and loan sharks in British Columbia for many for decades have had auto shops and it's an open, it, it wasn't even a secret with police that the, their, uh, their product was cars that were seized from loan sharking victims, stolen vehicles, and they were shipping these cars offshore. And Vancouver has just been a boom industry in that area of what, what looks definitely like not only criminal money laundering, but stolen vehicles and extortion. So I, I just don't think it's a surprise to the policing world at all what we heard today and the correlations between the casinos, the real estate, uh, the, the offshore sales, and, and this, these vehicles are very tight. Do you think there's more to come yet here, Sam? I'm eager to see the, the, the reporting on the real estate. I can tell you, Simi, today that I know that uh, there was controversy within um, the German, uh, let's call, investigation team in finding out some of the information that I obtained from, uh, from police studies. Uh, when, when we reported on the scale of believed money laundering in luxury real estate in Vancouver, the sources were um, extremely credible. I don't know. I really don't think that they got the same level of detail and there was a pushback within the RCMP in terms of that information. I don't think they wanted out. 
So I think we got a little of a bit, uh, I'd, I'd say, um, a hint today when they said we can't quantify this car money laundering. I think they'll probably say the same thing around real estate money laundering. But I can tell you that I'm seeing uh, documents that point to uh, uh, fentanyl kingpins that are involved in real estate development in a big way. Well, then I guess we're going to be talking to you in the future as well. Sam, thank you. Thanks, Simi. That is Sam Cooper, National Investigative Journalist for Global News. Well, let's tell you about an event that's coming up this weekend that you're definitely going to notice. If you're passing by BC Place, City Hall, Bloedel Conservatory, uh, you're going to want to keep an eye out because you're going to see them lit up in yellow on the evenings. And it's all to promote awareness of an event that is taking place this Saturday morning. And we mean early Saturday morning. It's all in the name of preventing suicide and promoting awareness of positive mental health. The event is called Darkness into Light. And two of the organizers, Marie Gill and Amy O'Sullivan, uh, came to our show this morning to tell us more. <laughs> well, ladies, thank you so much for joining us today to talk about Darkness into Light. First off, can somebody explain to me what is Darkness into Light? What is it all about? So Darkness into Light started in Dublin uh, 10 years ago, and it's a 5K walk, and you walk at 4.30 in the morning, so you're walking from the darkness into the light, and it's to symbolize hope um, for those who need it and for those who are suffering from mental health issues, uh, and it's to help raise money for an Irish organization called Pieta House. Now, Pieta House, uh, it started off with one centre 12 years ago in Dublin, and um it offers free services to people who may be uh, struggling with suicidal thoughts, struggling with mental health issues, self-harm. Um, and it also provides bereavement counselling free of charge to those who have lost people to suicide. Right. It seems like such a simple thing, though, doesn't it? To say, oh, we're going to have this walk where it starts out in darkness and goes into light. But that symbolism is so powerful when you stop and think about that. It's incredibly powerful. And since the original walk, it started with 400 people walking in a park in Dublin. Um, and in the last 10 years, it's grown to 150 locations. 16 countries worldwide wow. and over five continents. And last year, actually, over 200,000 people walked globally from the darkness into the light. Um, and the beautiful thing about it is each different country... Um, each different location, should I say, partners with a local like-minded charity. Oh, nice. So 50% of all of the funds raised, for example, in Vancouver, 50% um, of all of the funds raised this year go to the Kettle Society, which is a Vancouver-based organization, very local. They do a lot of work with the community uh, within the downtown east side with mental health issues, homelessness, poverty. They have a amazing drop-in center yeah. that's open 24-7 for people that need it. They serve meals there 24-7. So it's definitely a good cause, It's right? an amazing cause. So are we getting better at this, though? Do you think, are we getting better at talking about these issues that we have? Marie, do you think we're getting better? I think so, and especially this week, it's the Mental Health Awareness Week, so which makes it even better because the walk start is on Saturday morning. Um, I think it's more, it has to be an open conversation in everyday life. It has to be like a common cold. Why are we not talking about mental health? Because it's 
as important if not more important because I feel now with social media and like younger generations coming up they're all behind screens so it's going to be even harder to have a verbal conversation but I think what Darkness Into Light does really well is promotes that to stop the stigma and say it's okay not to be okay and we've turned that into hashtag now so it makes it easier for people to relate in everyday life and it's not just someone who is really introverted or quiet it can be like anybody like a banker somebody like a guy you meet in a bar on a Friday night that's like the most happiest person in the world but goes home and like cries themselves to sleep it's it needs to be like a more natural conversation to be like, everybody has these issues. Why can't we talk mm-hmm. about it? I think what it's also done is not just allowed people who need help to say, I need help. It's allowed the people who see them to say, are you OK? Can Is there anything I can do to help you? Because I think before you were kind of afraid to do that, right? You were afraid to reach out, don't you think? Absolutely. Yeah, there's such stigma attached to it. And that's what we're trying to do on the morning. It's so beautiful because... Everyone can have that open, honest conversation and everyone comes up to myself and Marie as part of the committee Mm -hmm. and shares their stories with us openly and honestly and tells us about people they've lost. And we're trying to encourage that on our social media now as well. We're each sharing our stories of why we walk. It's a campaign that we're doing and um, it's been really effective. Yeah, Yeah. You mentioned bereavement and that's a huge issue too because the people who get left behind. Absolutely. That is really hard. Yeah. Absolutely. And so yeah. they need they need help too and maybe they're having trouble admitting it. Yeah. Yeah, it's just as important to you know, as you say, the ones that are left behind are the ones that really suffer um, the aftermath. So it's so important that they don't feel like they're stigmatized by it as well and yeah. that they can have those conversations and they can talk about it. And uh, So it yeah. may seem troublesome getting up very early on a Saturday morning <laughs> to go and do this. Yeah. But if you feel like you need to be around like friendly people and to talk, this seems like a pretty good thing to do. Absolutely. And Burnaby Lake is so beautiful to walk around. Because literally you start off and we give everybody little candles and we have a banner of hope so you can sign people's names that you're doing it in memory of or little messages. And then you walk around, but literally as the sun rises, you're going around Burnaby Lake. So it's so nice and nobody walks alone. So even if you arrive on your own, you will not be walking on your own. And that's the biggest thing. So everybody does it as a collective. That is so nice. Okay, so give me the details. What do people need to know? How can they find out more? You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram, Darkness Into Light Vancouver. Uh, darknessintolight.ie is all the information to register. We The walk starts at 4.30 a.m. That's a.m. 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 Great way to start your Saturday morning. Um, 4.30 a.m. May 11th, so this Saturday. And when you register, you get a yellow T-shirt. So it is... Uh, over we've three over three hundred people walking, so we need more. We want to break at least four hundred if we can, mm-hmm. and everybody gets a yellow T-shirt to walk around Burnaby Lake to stop the stigma against suicide. Sounds like a great event. Thanks to both of you for being here today. Thank you so Thank much you. for having us. That's Amy O'Sullivan, Marie Gill. They are the organizers of Darkness Into Light. Just Google it. They could use your help this uh, Saturday morning if you would like to participate in that. Well, big day in Surrey today as well. They had their annual State of the City address there. Mayor Doug McCallum reiterated that forming a civic police force is, he says, the right move. And once again, 
double down on the idea that new officers are going to be ready to hit the streets in July of 2020. That is a pretty tight time schedule, given that the report proposing this hasn't even been finished yet. Now, there was some kind of controversy that went along with this event today because of the decision to have a police car sitting there for this announcement that was kind of fully all decked out uh, with the Surrey Police Department decals and the whole thing. Essentially, it looked like a car from the future Surrey Police Department. Some people, like the Cloverdale Community Association President Mike Bola, said that this was wrong, called it mind-boggling, actually. But we wanted to talk more about this with Global News Senior Reporter Janet Brown, who joins us now. Hi, Janet. Hi, Simi. And you're right. It was really jarring for a lot of people who turned out to hear the mayor's State of the City address this morning. The vehicle was parked right outside on the City Hall Plaza, right in front of the hotel where the mayor was speaking and across across the plaza in Surrey City Hall. And there it was, large as life for everybody to see. There were just about 150 people in all there this morning. And one of the people there to take in the mayor's speech too was the Surrey RCMP officer in charge, Dwayne McDonald. And uh, the mayor said, you know what, he's pretty confident that this Surrey police force will get the nod and approval by the provincial government. Government, and therefore, he says he was very confident in rolling out that new vehicle this morning. And uh, much of his speech this morning, Simi, focused on this new police force that he is in the process of forming. Uh, his speech lasted over half an hour. It was 11 pages in all. It was really long. But as I say, a lot of it focusing on the new city police force. And here is more of what the mayor had to tell folks this morning in Surrey. What we are doing requires political courage. There is no question that the policing transition is a political minefield. I would argue that's the main reason that previous councils have not attempted it before. No politician wants to be on the hook for the initial costs or draw the attention of the critics. Case in point, it is all the talk around costs. There is no shortage of opinions here no matter how far-fetched some of them may be. The critics bring up the salary savings we currently have with the RCMP versus a unionized city police forces. Fact is, those salary savings would be canceled out in a couple of years because the RCMP are moving to a pay scale that will put them on par with unionized city police. When that happens, those salary increases would be passed down to us, change or not. I have always said there will be a cost attached, and nothing has changed on that front. My view is that it will be around 10% range, and I stand by that. You know, Janet, that's a lot of talk about something where the report on this topic hasn't even been finished yet. We've lost Janet Brown. Jeez, we had her there just a second ago. We are going to get her back with us so we can talk more about this story because it's a big one today. It's this one out of Surrey where they've got the Surrey Police Department vehicle parked out front there on the plaza, Surrey City Hall, while Surrey Mayor Doug McCallum was giving his uh, State of the City address. Now, Janet is with us. Janet, I was saying that listening to Doug McCallum talk there, he had a lot of discussion about the Surrey Police Force, which is interesting given that the report that is supposed to deal with the force hasn't even been finished yet. 
Well, that's the irony, isn't it, Simi? I mean, the, the report is still being formulated and written. It hasn't even been sent off to the province yet. The mayor says that's still going to be another 10 days or so before it goes to the Solicitor General, Mike Farnworth. So a lot of people who were at the event this morning, uh, some were using the word arrogant, that the vehicle was mm. there. But it just proves how confident the mayor feels that this uh, process is going to go through and that we will have a Surrey police force taking over from the RCMP. He also talked about consultation taking place after the report goes to Victoria. But consultation, um, I think what he means really is holding community meetings to inform the people what's going to be happening. He also said there will be an opportunity for folks to ask questions of city staff, what to expect with the new city police force, and also to have some input, however, as to what they would like to see the police do and what they want to see the new force focus in on as well. Right. Um, as I said, somebody was there who was uh, very curious to see what his reaction was this morning. Story RCMP officer in charge, Dwayne McDonald, uh, he took a look at the police car and I caught up with him and I asked him, hey, what did you think about seeing this for the first time? Here's what he had to say. Well, it certainly is a unique situation, but uh, quite honestly, my attention is uh, directed toward police in the city now and uh, with our own officers, uh, men and women, they do a fantastic job every day. I think uh, as we wait to uh, see what the province decides with respect to transition, I think for our own officers and for myself, we just put that aside for now and, and look forward to doing our daily job. What about the morale of the force? How is it right now, considering what's happening? Well, I think once the uh, proposition of transition uh, came up through the City Council, I think our officers, uh, I think at first probably felt a little underappreciated, but we've received a significant amount of support from residents here in the city and from our community partners and uh, business association partners and other police agencies. So I think overall morale is good, and uh, we're proud of the job that we do. Well, that's interesting as well, Janet. It's a bit awkward for him to be there in a position like that. Uh, awkward, yes, absolutely. Very difficult for him, but he puts a smile on his face and carries on as usual. And, you know, what other choice does he have to do? We also heard that the new uh, police board, if this is approved, will be formulated first. And then the police board will be responsible for hiring the new chief, which will take place in January. So if this goes ahead, Dwayne McDonald is out of a job, um, probably moving into another position with the RCMP somewhere. But right now, uh, he's looking at, what, another six months on the job, and that's about it. Uh, another person who was there this morning, very interesting, Anita Huberman, the CEO of the Surrey Board of Trade. Over the last few months, her and the mayor have butted heads. I asked her what she thought of seeing this new police vehicle for the first time as well. I'm actually surprised uh, that it's out there because uh, we're still waiting for the City of Surrey's uh, report on the police transition and uh, we're waiting to hear you know, what the eventual decision will be from uh, Minister Farnworth. Uh, I know uh, the Surrey Board of Trade, we met with the minister uh, in early uh, March, or yeah, it was early March, and uh, really uh, I know that he's going to give a very thoughtful, considered opinion, but uh, I was surprised uh, to see um, the new version of a police car at uh, today's event. Well, I have to say, though, Janet, it sounds like it was a very clever marketing ploy on the part of the mayor and the staff there to have that out there, because that picture is going to be everywhere today. 
You better believe it. When I found out yesterday that that vehicle was going to be there, that's what I was saying to myself. That is going to be the story of the day. Yeah. Yes, what the mayor has to say is important, but the fact that that police car is there, yeah, that's the story. Um, some other highlights, if we have just a minute or yeah, two no, here, course, Simi, to wrap things up. Um, the mayor obviously didn't talk all about policing in his speech this morning. Um, he also highlighted SkyTrain and how that's proceeding out to Langley. And he uh, said that Surrey's new line along the Fraser Highway is only the first phase. He says future plans include expanding into Newton and ultimately into South Surrey. He has said that before, but saying it again. And uh, some really good news. It just shows you how the economy of Surrey is booming right now. The mayor is saying in the city center area alone where City Hall is, there are currently more than 16 high-rise developments in the works underway right now. 16 high-rises. It's amazing. And he said the value of construction in Surrey topped more than one5 billion dollars in permits last year he says right now the city of surrey is more than 250 million dollars ahead ahead of the same time last year and uh wow. finally simmy he took a little run at the media at the end of his speech this of morning course which, he did. which caught my eye and uh let me just read it to you he says uh you may see the occasional media report that tries to tell us otherwise that things are going well in surrey he says Uh, It is funny how the negative stuff, no matter how trivial, takes precedence over the good things that are happening in our city. (laughs) He says the fact is Surrey is on the move and our future is bright. And um, You know what's funny about that, Janet? He sounds an awful lot like the previous mayor. Uh, Linda Hepner used to say the exact same thing. And it seems to me Doug McCallum campaigned on exploiting the concerns that people had about Surrey. Well, you know, read into it what you want, Simi, but um, yeah, it, it certainly caught my attention. I mean, you know what? The media is not there to report on all the good news. The media is there to report on what is happening, whether it is good or bad. And that is our job. But yeah. um, talking about, yeah, those high rises under development in Surrey, you know, it's good to talk about things like that for sure. It just shows you how the economy south of the Fraser is booming. It's not always focused on Vancouver and uh, Burnaby Coquitlamic. Etc. So true. About the police car, though, Jen, do we know how much it costs? And I was also curious that when it comes to the logo and the colors and all of that, I thought, wouldn't they have wanted to consult with the public on that and get the public involved in something fun? Well, uh, we asked the mayor uh, afterwards in a scrum, how much did it cost? He said he did not have the dollar figure. He did not know. And in terms of consulting the public, you know, that's been a big concern, Simi, over these recent months. The, the people feel, for the majority, that they do want some public consultation held, some input. And that's something that Councillor Stephen Pettigrew tried to raise yesterday at the Public Safety Committee meeting. And the mayor asked that that uh, request go in camera that they discussed it behind closed doors. So again, uh, Mr. Pettigrew unsuccessful um, in trying to have uh, the issue of public consultation discussed because he wants to see that take place before the report goes to Victoria. But clearly time is running out because the city is planning to ship it off to the Solicitor General in the next seven to ten days. But uh, Mr. Pettigrew tried. He feels like the public does want an input. They do. And to say. And uh, bottom line, too, uh, you know, I'm hearing that the public wants to to know what the cost is going to be of a new police force. Um, The mayor again saying, he quote, he says, my view is that it will be around the 10% range. And he says, I stand by that. 
Interesting. So, um, he's been saying that since day one, that a new civic police force is only going to be about 10% more. And he's basically promising that that's what it will be. All right. So that's interesting as well. Also, Simi, yep. he has not seen this report that is being uh, written, according to the mayor, and neither have the city councillors. So. Okay, well, I'm looking forward to that report now go. for sure. Janet, thank you. <laughs> thank you, Simi. That Bye-bye. is Janet Brown, our Global News senior reporter. We want to tell you now about this unbelievable documentary that is getting rave reviews from so many places. And the focus of this documentary is a Surrey area family and their really heart-wrenching yet hopeful story. It describes the sexual abuse of three sisters who grew up in Williams Lake decades ago. Have a listen. Our family was your typical Punjabi family. We kept to ourselves, but were always up to celebrate an occasion with singing and dancing and eventually drama. When I was 11, that man came into our house. We were told, this is your brother, you respect him, and we gave him that respect. I was raped at 11 years old. Someone my parents trusted. I decided to come out because I witnessed something that this person is still active in abusing girls. And then my world shattered. My parents didn't suggest us going to the police. That was a step that we had to take on our own. It's powerful stuff. The sisters, G.T. Kira and Salakshna, were abused by an older cousin beginning in their childhood years. But they didn't tell their whole family about it until 2006. Now, this story, along with the court case that kind of developed from that, uh, is part of this documentary film directed by Baljeet Sangra, who is also with us today to talk about this, along with G.T. Puni, who is one of the subjects of the film, which is called Because We Are Girls. And thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. G.T., how difficult was this process for you? It's not just your story, but now your story on film. Um, well, I think the hard part is left behind. Coming out was difficult. Uh, living with the abuse was difficult. Coming out was difficult. And then the court case, going through that long journey was difficult. But the film, um, it's just beautiful and shows exactly um, what our family went through. Baljeet, why was it important for you to make this? Well, I mean, it's a very important topic. And I was really blessed in a way that me and GT are friends so she disclosed that uh, her and her sisters were victims of sexual abuse like maybe a decade ago so more than that um, and we talked about it then I had done some other documentaries and we're like she actually said this would, what do you think of this as a documentary so she had already come out to the police told her family and in her mind she thought this could be a documentary so she was really the catalyst of the story um, but it's an important topic. When we were doing it around, uh, we filmed from 2015 to 2018. In 2017, the We Too Times Up got so much momentum. And we were in, in court, at the Supreme Court, trying to get this heard, trying to get their testimonies. And there were so many delays. So I really felt that we were part of that movement. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were like voices of change. So it was incredible. I think it really empowered me. And I feel so so lucky to be part of this journey because you know i'm a woman i'm from this community and this is a huge issue and we're going to help create some change and some dialogue jt can you tell us a bit about the story here like how old were you when the abuse started i was 11 and um i was perfectly immaculately groomed by this man step by step and uh did exactly what he wanted and was obedient and following all those cultural um um submissive roles of 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 
a little girl. This was an older member of your family. Yes, he was at least about nine and a half years older than me. And um, it did, I didn't get away from him until I was 23 years old. And what about your sisters? Um, my sisters throughout that same time period, um, obviously were raped and assaulted themselves. So I was 22 years old when I found out that, um, this man had done all this stuff to my sisters as well. At that point, had you thought that you had been singled out for this behavior? Yes. He had packaged it, you know, as, um, love or whatever he called it. So, and of course I thought I was a special one. What happened when you found out then for your sisters as well? That must have been very difficult. That was my darkest day. How far away was that from the moment when you decided that you had to tell the rest of your family? Oh, this was back in 1990, what I'm talking about. But I didn't break my silence till 2006 when um, my sister and I realized that this person still seems actively in abusing um, other little girls. We witnessed something which caused us to believe that. So then we just knew we had to do the right thing. It's still happening. And I had to protect my little girl. She was six at the time. This man's at the same family functions. We see him everywhere. And then um, my sister and I are always guarded as to we have to protect my child. So when we learned that he's, you know, still doing this, then it became our automatic duty to speak up. And what happened when you did speak up? What was the reaction like of your family members? Um, Well, my parents were obviously devastated and sad and um, it was traumatic. And then after that, um, there were supposed to... Some things were supposed to happen, like dad was supposed to sit down with him with a bunch of other elders, as they do in our community, and ask him, like, who the hell are you to do this to to our daughters? That never happened. So then we had to take it amongst ourselves. So I said, Kire, I'm ready to go to the police. Let's go. Four months after we disclosed it to my family, we knew nothing's going to be done about it. So we took it to the police to try and stop this man. And why was nothing done about it? Was it just a, oh, it's been, it was so long ago? Like, were they trying to sweep it under the rug? Or what was the rationale for that? Yes, they were our own family members, including my parents, um, including the family of our rapist, were trying to silence us by pointing fingers at, at us that it's your fault. You were responsible. You are to blame. And after having all this pleasure with my brother, one of the sisters said, you're complaining now. But, they actually used that word. Yes. So um, oh. we just knew that we had to tell our truth. And it was all about, for my parents, it was like the shame and the honor, right? Keeping the family honor, the Pune right. name. Um, my mom always felt throughout the years that she has all these daughters to marry off. So you can, can never let something like this come out. I have to ask, what is your relationship like with your parents today? <laughs> I love my parents and they did the best they could in raising us. And this shame and blame is passed on from generation to generation. So they're programmed by their parents and um, grandparents as to what and how to deal with something like this. And their way of dealing with it is just bearing it and bowing down to, to shame. So I don't, we don't blame them at all. And yes, they could have done things differently, but going through this process and the way Baljeet has made this film and um, it just really shows like for my parents, like we have a lot of empathy for them. Yeah. Baljeet, was that one of the goals then when you make a film like this? And again, it's called Because We Are Girls. Is Do you hope to, to show it to people like GT's parents so that oh, they have a better understanding of what happened it's, here? It's very important. Um, this is 
sexual abuse impacts the whole family. It affects um, their relationships with each other. The three sisters, you know, she just disclosed that they didn't even tell each other when this was happening. Yeah. They have a brother. He wasn't aware until much later. And their parents. So it's very multi-layered. I felt it was really important uh, to have that context. So you meet everybody very slowly, you know, and this... And the court thread is woven through the film. So you have a lot of compassion for the family and um, where their parents are coming from. I thought that was really important. I thought it was important to understand the parents. They came as new immigrants. They were really young parents. Straight away, they were asked to sponsor all their family. You know, there's a scene in the film where Kira says, you know, growing up, there was like 16 people in my family. So, you know, and they're working labor jobs and they have three daughters. You have to put some context. Yeah, I think it's really important. I think a lot of people would say you're being very understanding, though, towards that. Was the court process at all, um, did it help in any way for you? The only thing in the court process that um, I am in love with was our prosecutor, Ms. Julie Dufour. That woman, she uh, endlessly worked on our case for years and years and years. And it was a hard and difficult case. It's a historical case. Um, the system itself, going through that journey, that is a very traumatic journey, which just re-victimized my sisters and I and made it more traumatic so that, yes, you do suffer more you know, post-traumatic stress. And it's as if you're made out to be, um, as if you're lying. You, you have, have to, to prove it every single time. You have to prove yeah. it and defend yourself and hear all these horrible lies about yourself. And then your sexual history uh, before I was 11 and after is 11. All, yes. Everything is on display in, in public court and you have no privacy. So even our counseling records were, were they went after that too. Where is the court case at at this point, Bill Jean? Well, I follow the film to the for the, uh, when the judgment uh, was given, and it was uh, four counts out of six guilty. So we thought we, you know, the film is done. <laughs> but the accused, the defendant, he applied for what's known as a Jordan application. It's a charter application, basically saying that his rights were breached because the whole trial process took so long. That's um, That's been heard by the court. We're waiting for that decision. If he wins, the charges get stayed. If it's denied, there will be sentencing. So you're, so still, we're you're not done yet. Yeah. There's still quite a process. Uh, this story is so uh, moving and inspirational. Where can people see Because We Are Girls? Well, <laughs> we premiered at Doxa uh, May 3rd. It was sold out. It was incredible. 700 people at the Playhouse. We're playing tonight at uh, 6.30. And they've added two shows on Sunday at Woodward's uh, SFU downtown. You can go to doxafestival.ca for um, information and tickets. I'll just run through that one more time. So the, sh- the movie's called Because We Are Girls, playing at the Doxa Film Festival. It is tonight at 6.30 at the Van City Theatre. That's the one at 1181 Seymour Street. Sunday, if you'd like to go, it's uh, being, it has a showing at 2 o'clock. Uh, that's at the um, SFU building on West Hastings. And then on Sunday, there's also a showing at 9 o'clock at the Van City Theatre. And as you mentioned, just go to doxafestival.ca. Uh, Belgeet and GT, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so thank much. You. And good luck. The movie is called Because We Are Girls. I think a lot of people in the last couple of years have looked around our region and said, man, there's a lot of really expensive cars around here. You're not alone in thinking that. It's also prompted an investigation by Dr. Peter German into whether or not money was being laundered through the luxury car market. And today, the report says resoundingly, yes, they do believe that is happening. We wanted to talk more about that now with Attorney General David Eby, who joins us. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me, Simi. 
So what do you think this report says about what was happening in our province in those, you know, 2013, 2014, 2015? What kind of picture do you think that was shaping up to be? Well, the review found um, car dealers uh, freely acknowledging uh, that individuals are bringing in bags of cash or orchestrating multiple small international wire transfers uh, to different accounts in order to buy cars. Um, they found that uh, individuals with high-level criminal records are alleged to be principals in several uh, used luxury car dealerships in Lower Mainland. Uh, they found, and, and this, uh, to your question, uh, they uncovered this complicated luxury vehicle export scheme involving hundreds of different straw buyers acting on behalf of unre- unregulated vehicle exporters. Uh, and, uh, and the surprising thing about it and the interesting thing is that uh, these people were using, and these companies, we're using a PST rebate program that allows us to see the growth in this activity. So prior to 2013, about 100 cars a year um, made an applica- 100 individuals a year made application for cars uh, that they wanted the PST refunded on that they were exporting. Um, after 2013, uh, it increased to about, well, exactly 3,674 vehicles in 2016, a massive increase. Uh, and uh, and this increase in these exported vehicles uh, through this gray market uh, maps up very closely with the increase in suspicious cash transactions in casinos and the run-up in the real estate market, which I observe uh, and don't draw any conclusion from, but just say, wow, uh, you know, look at this. Yeah. Uh, so it's uh, what we're seeing is a fairly consistent trend, whether it's luxury car exports uh, through this gray market or suspicious cash transactions or activity in the real estate market. Uh, uh, from 2013 uh, through to 2018. So wouldn't that have been flagged? I mean, if you've got a PST rebate program that had 100 people who applied for it in 2013, now you're talking more than 3,000 a couple of years later, wouldn't there be some kind of red light that goes off? Yes. Uh, and in fact, it was uh, red lights in the Ministry of Finance that drew uh, Dr. German to this specific program. It was uh, the concerns of Ministry of Finance employees that uh, essentially for the last uh five or six years, have been facilitating uh, PST refunds for people that they believe to be involved in uh, either uh, extremely gray market or illegal activity, uh, acting as straw buyers, um, uh, bringing cash from unknown sources, uh, the proceeds of the sales ending up uh, we don't know where, um, and in order to export vehicles. And the reason why this is happening is if you buy a luxury vehicle, in BC, um, it is often cheaper uh, because the manufacturers set different prices for BC than they do other parts of the world. And, uh, and these exporters are taking advantage of what's essentially an arbitrage opportunity or a chance to sell it at a higher price in another jurisdiction through exporting it this way. Um, so, so rather disturbing conclusion that it's possible uh, and likely that criminals were receiving PST refunds on their money laundering activity. Right. So not only were they showing up with money, you couldn't take it to the bank. So they go to the luxury car dealership with grocery bags full of money. They buy a car and then they were also making money off selling that car. So they were winning all over. That's right. And then also because um, as, as far as we can tell, the export of the vehicles, uh, no law against that. Uh, there's also a concern raised in the report that stolen luxury vehicles in the lower mainland uh, have been exported as well, also through the port, also through um, uh, the same mechanism, and there's no dedicated police presence at the port. So all of these uh, quasi-legitimately exported luxury vehicles being mixed in with stolen luxury vehicles 
uh, leaving through the port, um, costing ICBC about $40 million a year. Okay, so and you mentioned that at the Ministry of Finance, this was a concern, but did they flag it? Did, did they bring it to their higher-ups? Like, when this was happening, was there anybody who said, hey, I think we have a problem here? Uh, yes. So, the, um, the in fact, uh, we understand that additional uh, Ministry of Finance people, uh, staffers, had to be added um, to the department to process these uh, claims. So, certainly, there was some understanding within the Ministry of Finance, and the Ministry of Finance is currently doing the work right now on that program, the policy work, to uh, to end uh, this activity and to make sure uh, that uh, that criminals are not benefiting from PST refunds. So, were they still doing that, like up until recently? So the program still exists right now, and part of the reason for um, uh, that it hasn't been immediately shut down is uh, we need to do the legal work around uh, people's entitlement to uh, constitutional entitlement, for example, in relation to PST and our ability to levy PST on uh, on products that uh, are destined for export, and also uh, whether or not we can just change it through regulation or whether we have to do a legislative change. Um, so that work is happening right now. Are you at all concerned, Mr. Eby, about what else may be going on out there? Like right now, this has been likened to whack-a-mole, right? So now we know it's luxury cars and we know it's real estate, but now what's going on? Where is the money going? Yeah, I think that's a, that's totally a, a appropriate question to ask. Um, Dr. German has flagged, uh, uh, obviously, real estate for us as well. We have uh, um, reports that we expect to be releasing um, uh, possibly as soon as this week into the real estate market as well. Um, luxury goods, uh, luxury handbags, designer goods, and so on are also areas that are vulnerable. That's why I believe Dr. German uh, has identified for us the possibility of using geographic targeting orders, which are used in the United States, to uh, require reporting in certain areas where it's identified that money laundering is an issue, and also getting away from the model where um, you only report $10,000 or more in cash in certain sectors. So, for example, in BC, casinos have to report, um, but luxury car sellers do not have to report, um, and uh, luxury uh, goods sellers don't have to report, and horse racing, uh, for some reason, uh, has been exempted from having to report cash transactions in excess of $10,000. So um, we think that, it, based on his recommendation to us, this would be a good opportunity to say, well, I don't understand why one sector instead of the other has to report. Right. So how quickly can those changes be made? Well, the big problem with that is obviously that's federal responsibility. So provincially, um, what I can tell you we've done is uh, told you about the Ministry of Finance uh, review of the program. And uh, we've also sent this uh, report and the details of the allegations to police uh, ICBC Vehicle Sales Authority. And we're preparing for provincial regulation of the luxury car sector. But I am concerned that, you know, we get the regulation in place and we regulate who the principals are and make sure they don't have high-level drug convictions and, and so on. Uh, but then they move into another sector. So uh, obviously this is something where we have to stay alert, but also I think the message is slowly getting out that BC is not a great place uh, to do this kind of business. And I've heard concerns expressed from other jurisdictions that maybe we're moving the problem over to them across Canada, which is why we really need the federal government to be involved in this as well. You mentioned there's a couple of more reports coming out. What are those? Uh, so German uh, uh, did look at the real estate. Dr. German did look at the real estate market as well. Uh, so that portion of his report, as well as uh, Maureen Maloney, uh, did a report commissioned by the Ministry of Finance with some international experts on money laundering and real estate. Those two, those are the two reports uh, yet to come out. And then uh, Cabinet will be issuing a decision about whether or not we'll be going to a public inquiry. So we'd say the next two weeks we should know? Uh, so the uh, my expectation and hope is that those two reports come out by the end of this week. All right, then I guess we'll be talking to you. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. That is David Eby, the Attorney General of British Columbia.